If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, there are a few new faces in here today. Uh, my name is Josh Heisler. I serve as the campus pastor of the Point Church here in Alberta. Well, we are one church in two locations here and over at the base of Perdido Key in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, and I want to apologize in advance. I am getting over a cold, so I'm going to have a bottle of water here. And uh, I may have to be a little bit slow, which means probably normal speed for most people because I talk fast at times. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them up to Ephesians chapter 4? Uh, we're going to take a look at a, a passage of Scripture, um, kind of looking in the middle of, of a paragraph, and, and just talk about what it means to be the church, what it means to be Christians. Um, ha- have you ever asked yourself, what are we doing here? Have you ever asked that question? I remember about two years ago, I was flying off of the USS uh, John C. Stennis. We were in the tropics, um, and, and down in the tropics, if you've ever been down there, you know that uh, a lot of times in the late afternoons, these storms will build up. Well, while we were flying out over the boat, um, I was flying, my pilot and I were leading around a, a junior wingman, and we were circling overhead mom at, at about 2,000 feet, waiting for the jets to launch off the ship so that we could land. That's how it works. They, they launch a wave of jets, and then they recover a wave of jets. And so we were waiting our turn to, to, for them to get those jets off the flight deck so that we could come and land. And as we were circling overhead mom at 2,000 feet, I looked about 10 miles out ahead of the ship, and there was this massive line of, of thunderstorms, just a huge line of squalls that was building up. And as I was flying overhead the ship and looking down and watching them launch jets, all I could think to myself is, come on, guys, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Well, it took some time, but eventually that last jet got, got onto the waste cat. And once you see the jet on the waste cat, you know it's time to start your approach. So they're getting ready to launch that last, last jet off the flight deck. And we start our descending turn. We descend down to 800 feet. And as we're descending down and coming to fly overhead mom, we go about a mile upwind of mom and fly straight into those storms. The, the rain was so incredibly heavy that we had zero visibility. We could barely see the nose of our aircraft 15 feet out in front of the cockpit. It was bad. So what we did is we executed our brake turn. So we, we turn 180 degrees, basically slow down, descend down to 500 feet, enter the pattern to land. And as we're on our downwind leg, about three quarters of a mile in front of the ship, there's mom. It appears. We fly out of the weather. There she is right there. I hear the boss up in the tower tell everybody except us, to switch marshal control for vectored approaches to landing. They got the good deal. We got the bad deal. He told us to continue our approach. So we can, continued going. We got to about a beam, the, the back of the ship, and we start our turn onto final bearing to land on the aircraft carrier. And as we roll out on final bearing, the bow of the ship entered the storm. And as we crossed the round down the back of the ship, the ship just completely disappeared, everything. It was all gone in the rain. Now, we were close enough at that point that we kept going. We caught the wire. We came to a stop right there on the flight deck, and it was raining so hard that we couldn't see our taxi director, who was standing 20 feet out in front of us. And I remember distinctly saying to my pilot over the ICS, I said, what are we doing here? Have you ever asked a question like that? Sometimes, I, I think we all have, and, and sometimes that question is a question of exasperation like that day. Like, we're just doing a training mission. Why is the ship driving into the only storms? It's blue, blue sky everywhere else except right here. And that's where the ship went, and you're laughing because you know it's true, right? The ship drove straight into the storm. What are we doing here? But, but sometimes that question is also a reflective question. 
Sometimes it's, it's not exasperation. It's more like, what, what are we doing here? Why are we here? And, and here's the thing. About two years later, or sorry, a, a few months later, two years ago, I, I was reading this book, and I found myself asking that same question again. I was reading a book on church planting at the time, and, and, and this question just kept coming back to me. Uh, but this time, the essence of the question was rooted in the fact that I was trying to reconcile what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church with what has become the actual practice for a lot of people in America today. Because I think a lot of Christians today have listened to what our world says about what their faith should look like in day-to-day life. You see, our our world tells us that faith is a private matter. You can believe what you want, that's okay, but keep it to ourselves. You're supposed to keep your faith to yourself. And, And there's a problem with that because if we believe that the Bible is true and we believe what Jesus said is true and applies to us, then then we've got a problem because he said to go into all the world and make disciples. And that just doesn't jive with this idea of faith being a private personal matter. At the same time, there are also a whole lot of Christians who are living out there that think that their salvation, the the point of becoming a Christian is to save you from hell, that that you want to go to heaven so you become a Christian. And, And I hope that as we've been together over the last six months, as we've been studying through the book of Colossians and Revelation, as we spent time getting ready for Advent, I I hope that you have come to understand that that is a misguided view of the gospel. But, but as I thought about this question, I kept coming, I, I kept coming back to it. I, I kept coming back to this question, of what are we doing here? What's the point of being a Christian? Like, like, why are we here? What's the point of being the church? Why are we here as Christians and the church? Why, if, if the point is just going to heaven, why the moment when we repent of our sin, doesn't God just snap us up into heaven at that moment? I, I think that if he's not going to do that, then there's a reason why he doesn't do that. So, so what are we doing here on earth? And, and as I've considered these questions and, and looked into scripture to try and work it through in my mind, I, I've confirmed over and over again that being a Christian was never meant to be just about praying this prayer and getting to go to heaven. And in the same vein, being the church was never about going to a a building on Sundays or or going to a building for weddings and funerals. It was never about being a building at all. I'm convinced that if that's what we think, then we have completely missed the mission that God has laid before us. You see, being a Christian, being the church is about more than getting to go to heaven. It's about more than than getting saved from hell. It's about living a life centered on, consumed by realizing God's kingdom here on earth. It's about living for Christ. So as I said, if you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to Ephesians chapter 4? We're going to start at verse 11. And in the remainder of the time that we have together today, I want to share with you something I believe the Lord has been teaching me over the last two years as I've pondered this question, as I've looked to Scripture. I believe He's given me the answer to this question, and I want to share that with you here today. Now, now, every time we open up a new book of the Bible, I try to give you a little bit of the background of the book of the Bible because context matters. If, if we understand what the Bible, who, who it was written to originally in the original audience, it will help us to better understand what's been written and how that applies to us. 
So we'll do the same thing here with the book of Ephesians. It was written by the Apostle Paul. I think most of you know that. It was written about the same time that the book of Colossians was written. In fact, the two, two books are parallel books. We talked about that a little bit in our Colossians series. So it was written most likely while Paul was a prisoner in Rome in 60 AD. Um, and and the, the letter was written to be a circular letter. And, and what that means as a circular letter is that it was, it was written to the church in Ephesus, but it was also intended to be circulated throughout the churches of Asia Minor. This letter was written to Ephesus, but it was also intended to be read by all of the churches that we've been studying over the last seven weeks in our series in the book of Revelation, reading someone else's mail. All those churches would have received a copy of this letter. It was meant for them. And, and the beauty of that is that because this letter was written for multiple churches, we can understand that, that this letter was written for us as well which means that if we were to go to chapter 1, verse 1, and we were going to read what it says, it would be fair to read that as saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Alberta, Alabama, and are faithful to Jesus Christ. This letter was a, church, a letter to the church in Ephesus. Yes, absolutely it was. But it's also a letter to us, which is why we can learn so much from it. And as we come to chapter 4 in the letter, Paul has been talking about the importance of unity within the church. And as part of that conversation, he speaks, speaks about these gifts that the Lord has given to the church. And if we look at those gifts and the reasons why those gifts are given, I think we're going to find the answer to these questions I've posed. So let's take a look. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11 if you uh, don't have your Bible with you, it'll be up on the screens here for you as well. The Word of God says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we begin to study your word today, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do your work of illumination, that you would show us what your words mean to us today here in the church, that you would show us what it means to follow you. Would, would you open our hearts to hear you? Would you speak through your word to let us leave out of this room, this building today, changed by your good news, by your word, ready to go live your mission in the world? Father God, would you work through us today? Would you teach us something new? Teach me something new today as we go through your word together. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen. If, if you're reading from your Bible today, as I was reading through this text, and, and you have a, a, bear, a, a 
translation of the Bible that flows out the, the Bible in paragraph form as opposed to just verse after verse after verse, then you might have noticed that our text today begins mid-paragraph, which is a little strange for how we normally go through a text here in the church. The, the paragraph itself actually begins at chapter 4, verse 1, and Paul has been talking, as I said a minute ago, about the importance of unity in the church. And, and as he's talking about unity, he transitions to talk about how Christ has gifted the church with these various leaders. And, and that's where our text begins today. So, so Paul writes, and he, and, and the he there is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And I want to pause right there for just a second and point out that we could spend a whole lot of time talking about those various offices. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about the the shepherd or the the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and, and, and the teachers. But that's not the point. The point is that Christ gave these various leaders to the church for a purpose. He gave these leaders to the church for a purpose, and that purpose is to equip the saints. That's why he gave them. So so just at the very beginning of this section of the letter, we can see that the the, the beginning of a purpose for Christians, a beginning of the why are we here? He he gave these leaders to equip the church for a purpose. But but who are the saints? Now, now, when we read that, that word saints here in English, we might be tempted to think of super Christians that have made, been made famous by the Roman Catholic Church. You think of St. Christopher, St. Teresa, St. Patrick, right? You, you might be tempted to think of, of super Christians who have somehow attained a higher level of, of spirituality, a higher level of holiness than you could ever hope to attain. But that's simply not the case. The word that's translated here as saints here is, in in the Greek, it's hagios. And and what that word means is dedicated to God, worthy of God, that which is holy. And of the 61 times that it's used within the New Testament, every single time it's used, without fail, every single time it's used, it's talking about ordinary followers of Jesus, ordinary people like you and me. Or it's used about people who are collected together as a group, a a collected group of ordinary followers of Jesus, what we would call the church. And as we consider what we're doing here, and as we consider what's the point of being a Christian, what's the point of being the church, we we just have to notice that that the church is, is given these 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 leaders, all of us are given them collectively for a purpose. And if we look at that, we can see that it's to equip the saints and, and there's really divides that from there into two things. First, it's for the work of ministry. And the second is for building up the body of Christ. But, but what does that mean for us? What, what, are, what are these two things? Because um, if we want to understand them, we, we're going to need to break them down a bit. So the first is the work of ministry. And, and the first thing we ought to recognize as we read that in our text is that that word work in verse 12 implies an ongoing activity. When you become a Christian, you're not just changing your status. Um, you're not just going from lost over to saved. You are in a very real sense signing up. All Christians, all of us are called to an ongoing activity. We're called to, and we're equipped for the work of ministry. 
And that's not just isolated to this text. We, we see that same principle at work in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where, where Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You, you can see it right there in, in that text right there. Um, he, he says that all of the beloved brothers are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's, it's not just one or two. It's, it's not just a collect group. This isn't a command for just a few leaders. This is a command for all Christians. We're all called to work for the Lord. Not just some of us, all of us. The, the teaching throughout Scripture is that Christians have a mission, that there's work to be done. We, we need to be at that work. So, so we're called to an ongoing activity and that ongoing activity is called in this, in this text, it's called ministry. And that's another word that we American Christians tend to, to get wrong a lot. Because we think of ministry and we think that's what pastors do. That's my job. That's Josh's job. Josh's job is to do ministry. Or, or maybe we have a, a more expanded view of what it is and we think that's the job of the deacons or the elders. But we couldn't be further from the truth. The, the literal translation of ministry here, the actual definition of the word ministry in the Greek is service rendered in an intermediary capacity. What's that mean? It means service rendered by you for the Lord to someone else. Service rendered by you for the Lord to someone else. That's what ministry is. Ministry is not isolated to a specific person or a specific group of people. What we're seeing here is that the whole church is being equipped for the work, for the ongoing activity of ministry. Serving other people for the Lord. That's our job. That's why we're here. And this isn't just right here in the text. The Apostle Peter talked about this. Writing to a group of churches in the book of 1 Peter in chapter 2, he said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his, of Jesus' own possession. And what he's doing there is he's, he's creating a group. He's, he's boxing them in and he's saying, you guys were set aside by, by Jesus. But, but then he continues on. And, and this is the important part of that verse. He's, he's saying that you've been set aside as a people of his own choosing so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're saved and joined together as Christians to proclaim the gospel. That's why we become Christians. We, we're there to proclaim the excellencies, the, the amazing work that God has done in and for us through his sacrifice at the cross. That's what Peter is saying. But, but he continues on, and, he, and in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the implication that we, we see is that, that when these changes have happened, when you see that you used to be all alone, but now you've been grouped together in a body, when you used to be buried and trapped in your sin, but now you've been set free from your sins, the implication is that you're going to tell people about it. You're going to share that with people. Being a Christian, being the church, means that we take our, our message our good news, and we, we spread it into the community. 
And what Paul is saying, if we go back to Ephesians, is that these leaders were given to the church to equip the church for that mission. That's the first thing that the leaders equip us for. They, they equip us for the work of ministry. And the second thing they equip us for is for building up the body of believers. What's that mean? It means that Christians are supposed to help fellow Christians. It means that we're supposed to support each other. I've I've told you guys this a a dozen times. I'm going to keep telling you, being a Christian was never intended to be a single sport. It was never intended to be something that you did all by yourself. It's always been a group activity. And we saw this when we were studying in the the book of Colossians. You you may remember Colossians chapter 3, where God's word tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What are we seeing there? That That's a picture of fellow Jesus followers gathering together, living life together, following Jesus together encouraging each other on to follow Christ together. That's that's what it means to build up the body of believers. We saw the same thing about two weeks ago in our personal Bible study. If you're doing the F260, you may recall when we studied about two weeks ago, we saw Acts chapter 2. And and in verse 42, we read that the, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what that means is that they were studying the gospel together. They were spending time studying this message that they had received from the apostles. And and the fellowship, that that word in Greek there is koinonia. It it, it means spending time with one another, just being together. And to the breaking of bread, literally they were celebrating communion, yes, but literally they they were eating meals in each other's homes. They were spending time together. They were inviting each other in and just connecting to each other. And the prayers... They they were worshiping and seeking God together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The idea here is that you see Christians living life together. Being a Christian means that we live life together with fellow Christians. You you can't be a Christian by yourself. You you, You just can't. That's what Scripture is showing us. Like that Christian that goes out there and says, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I hate the church. We've all met somebody like that, right? But that's not biblical. Yes, the church is broken. Yes, the church is flawed. Yes, there are a whole bunch of sinners at church. Praise God, that's where they need to be. But scripture makes it clear that Christians are supposed to come together to grow into Christ. We're supposed to come together to be more like him. We live life with fellow Christians. And that doesn't mean that we just come together for a pep talk on Sunday mornings. It's got to be more than that, which is why I'm always pressing you to get involved, get tied into a connect group. If you're not connected to a connect group, and that's redundant, I know that, but if you're not connected to a connect group, come see me today. I want to get you tied in because as Christians, we are meant to grow together. Because being a Christian means we do life together. We're connected together. We support each other. And you guys are good at that. 
I have loved watching. In fact, to be perfectly honest, some of the support that this church has provided to some of our members, I found out about it weeks after it had happened which means I'm probably a little bit too much out of the loop. But more than that, it means that you guys are nailing it. You're being the church. That's awesome. We support each other. We encourage each other. We build each other up. We, we push each other into deeper and deeper relationship with Jesus. And that doesn't happen if you're just coming here on a Sunday morning and then going out and you're living by yourself the rest of the week. It's just not going to happen. We all need to be connected to other Christians, spurring each other on. We also have these little groups called D groups, discipleship groups. I'm in on one on Wednesday nights over at the Perdido campus with Pastor Joe and, and with a couple of other people in there. And, and, and it's kind of the whole range. You've got two pastors in the group. You've got a, a Christian who's been a guy for a while. And we've got a brand new baby Christian named Ross. And what I love about that, that D group when we come together is those men, especially Ross, like, like Ross, the brand new Christian is the one who pushes me harder. He pushes me more to want to know Jesus more, to want to follow Jesus. Jesus more. We need that in our lives. I need that. I'm a pastor. I need that. I need to be encouraged to follow Jesus. That's what the scripture is telling us we're supposed to do. That's why Paul says, that's what he means here in Ephesians 4 when he says that these leaders were given to equip the church for building up the body of Christ. And and as we think about these two missions, these, these two things that the, the leaders were given to equip the church for, if you, if you just say them out loud, they, they almost sound like they're the same thing, right? They, they actually sound like they're, they're basically the same thing. But, but there's a slight variation that I want you to notice. The fir- first is the work of the ministry. And, and that, it seems to me, is focused outside the church. It, it's focused on bringing the gospel to a world that, quite frankly, is desperately in need of the gospel, For for us today, that means that the work of the ministry for the Point Church is to reach our community here in Alberta. We, We start with the people who are right here in our community, and we seek to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we reach them, we move further and further out. We intentionally and deliberately spread the gospel in Alberta and then we we go out from there to Baldwin County and then to the state of Alabama because we want to reach our neighbors. We want to reach Alberta. We want to reach Lillian. We want to reach Baldwin County with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I say those words, I know it sounds like idealism coming from the guy on the stage because like, like, can we just be honest for a minute? It sounds kind of impossible, right? Can we, like, it sounds like, how are we, there's, there's a couple hundred thousand people in Alabama. How are we going to reach a hundred thousand people? One little church here in Alberta. The answer is, is in scripture because it, it might be impossible for us, but it's not for God. It's not for God, especially not if we're living the way he has intended for us to live. If we're living in this community together. So that's, that's the first one. And, and, and it's closely connected to that second one. Because while the first part is focused outside the church, the the second part, the the building up the body, is is clearly focused inside the church. It's focused on fellow believers. And and we absolutely must recognize that both of these are present in this verse. You know, a lot of times small churches are accused of becoming too inwardly focused. And that's, that's a fair criticism a lot of the time. But... Scripture is telling us here that we have to focus inside also. We have to ensure that we're growing together. 
And, and what we need to notice is that both of these are here. They're, they're connected. We, we're doing the work of ministry and we're building up the body of Christ, the church. We're doing both of them simultaneously. You, you can't do one and not do the other and still be inside the will of God for, for what he wants for you as a Christian, what he wants for you as the church. So what we're seeing here in this passage of Ephesians is, is that the point of being a Christian, the point of being the church, the, the reason that we're here, why are we here? What are we doing here? It, it, it's that we have an active mission to serve people other than ourselves. Being a Christian is about a lot more than just me, which means it's not a personal matter at all. Being the church is about a lot more than just us here today. Again, it's, it's not a private matter. But as Paul is outlining a process here, I, I don't know if you can see it, there, there is a process here. But, but as he's doing that, these, these leaders are given to help the church grow and to impact the world, but, but he's also leading us towards a goal. There, there's this goal for us because Christ has a goal for his church. And Paul wants us to see that goal. So he's going to continue his thought in verse 13. He, he said that we are given these leaders to equip the church for ministry inside and outside the church to enable us to reach a goal. And in verse 13, he tells us that goal. He, he says right there that until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And, and first, it might be helpful for us to recognize that this goal is actually kind of a, a two-part goal. It's twofold. The first half is that we attain to the unity of the faith. As followers of Jesus, we have something that binds us together. We share a common faith. I was reading on one commentary on this passage, a British scholar named F.F. Bruce, and he commented on this, that it is by faith that the people of Christ are united to him. And in being united to him, they realize their own unity with one another. You see, the goal is connected to the process. Our shared faith in Christ gives us a commonality that we wouldn't otherwise have. I, I think I've gotten to see this a little bit in my time in the Navy just because I've gotten to go all over the world. I meet people who don't speak the same language as me. They're from a different country from me. We, we have nothing in common except Jesus. And the fact that we have Jesus in common brings us together in a way that we otherwise wouldn't be together. It's a, this is this commonality that we find in Christ. It crosses all of these barriers that our world likes to set up around us. It crosses socioeconomic status. It crosses racial and ethnic divides. It crosses nationality and language. We have a unity in our faith that binds us together. This, this unity of faith is what makes living together possible. And I'm, I'm, I'm under no delusions here. Doing community the way the Bible talks about doing community, it's not going to be easy. I mean, like, we tend to idealize the early church, right? We see Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and we're like, man, those guys were just nailing it. They were so awesome. And, and we forget that it's only like two chapters later and the church is having issues. The church is having problems and we get our first deacons. And then we leave the book of Acts and we start reading letters like Galatians where, where, where Peter is being condemned by Peter, an apostle of Jesus is being condemned by Paul because he's being divisive in the church. Being a Christian is not easy. Why? Doing this community together, it's not easy. 
And the, the answer for why is that we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. We still strive. When we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus, we join a new community. And we call that community the church. The church isn't a building. The church is all of us. All of us are the church. And what that means is that if we're doing this right, buildings don't matter. Right? They're, they're a location for us to gather. They're, they're a convenience. But the buildings don't matter because we are the church. So we strive for a unity of faith. That's the goal. We want to have that unity. We want to achieve it, and then we want to protect it. We want to grow in that unity. That's our first half of this goal. The second half of the goal is that we attain the knowledge of the Son of God. The second half of the goal is that we know Jesus. And and you might be tempted to say, uh, Josh, we know the Son of God. We know Jesus. And I just kind of have to push back and say, do you really know Jesus? Or do you know about Jesus? Because here's the thing, there's a lot more to knowing someone than knowing about them. I, I've told you guys this before, right? Like because of our the age we're living in, because of the internet and social media, there's so much that we can know about somebody without actually knowing them. So let me tell you about a guy I know, right? This guy's name is Rick B. I don't, I don't think anybody in the room knows Rick B. I'm not telling you his last name. It's on my notes, but... Um, Rick was born in February, actually February 6th, 1971. Rick graduated from Tipton High School in Tipton, Missouri in 1989, and then he enlisted in the United States Navy. A few years later, he went to the University of Kansas where he graduated in 1996, and then he earned his wings of gold to fly in the Navy. He's retired now, and he and his wife Jody live in Lee Summit, Missouri, and they have seven, yes, seven kids, four sons, three daughters. One of those sons and two of those daughters are adopted. This, this summer on August 4th, Rick and Jody are going to celebrate their 30th wedding anniversary. Rick loves spending time with his family out on the lake. They, they are, he is a, a political conservative. He's a huge fan of the Kansas City Chiefs, which means he's having a great year because the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, right? Rick um, is a Christian. He loves Jesus. And and Rick is respected by his family. His kids love him. They're proud of him. They look up to him. But there's one more thing, and you probably already know it, about Rick that you need to know. And that's that I have never met Rick. Not once. I don't know the guy. I learned all of that information about him in a five-minute search on Facebook. And that tells us two things about Rick. Two things that really we can just take away. One, Rick absolutely needs to go and change his, his privacy settings on Facebook, <laughs> right? Right? I learned all of that in five minutes on Facebook. But the other thing that we can learn from that is there is a lot more to knowing someone than knowing about someone, right? So let me ask you again, do you really know Jesus? Do you know him? Because when I ask the question, what are we doing here? I'm, I'm asking this question because there's got to be more to being a Christian than just getting into heaven. 
There, there's got to be more to being a Christian than just changing my status from lost to saved, from being protected from hell. And, and this goal that Paul has been outlining here in Ephesians, I, I, I think that's key to understanding this. You see, the point of being a Christian is growing in a real relationship with Jesus. You see, knowing Jesus, really knowing him, that's what it means to be a Christian. We need to know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, you're going to love Jesus. You can't really know Jesus and not fall in love with him. And if you love him, you're going to want to serve him. You see, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When you love someone, you want to please them, right? You love your wife, so you want to please your wife. If I get in an argument with Tama, I, I don't want to make up with her because I, I, I want her to make me coffee in the morning. I, I'm, she makes me coffee every morning. I'm so spoiled. Uh, I, I, I make up with her because I want my relationship with her restored. When you, when you love someone, you want to please that person. But Christianity in America today has, has developed a bad reputation. It's been made into a caricature of what it really is. And the reason that this has happened is because people don't understand what Jesus meant when he said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'll say it again. When you love someone, you want to please that person. So you've got to hear me on this. Too often people inside and, and outside the church have come to believe that being a Christian means you have to stop doing things that, that we like, things that the world says are good things. Becoming a Christian, the world says, uh, means behavior modification. Becoming a Christian means a lot of saying no. And that simply isn't true. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And and the thing here that we need to pick up on is that commandment keeping is the result of a love for Jesus, a result of our love for God. It is not an attempt to earn something from God. Do you see the distinction there? There, There's a difference there. But, But Jesus doesn't stop by saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He actually keeps talking right after that. And, and I love what he says after that because it gets to the heart of the matter. He, he actually goes on and he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. And I know that's going to be hard for you to do. So I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit and he's going to enable you to actually keep the commandments. Jesus didn't leave us here to try and figure this out, to figure out how to follow him and obey everything that he said by force of will. He's given us a helper. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Obedience isn't always easy. And and Jesus gets that. He gets that following him is is not always going to be easy, so he sends the Holy Spirit. But obedience gets kind of a bad rap in our society, doesn't it? It it sounds like a loss of freedom. And that is the ultimate sin in America today. You can't take away someone's freedom. But that's simply not the case here. And and I'm going to take just a minute to kind of step aside from Ephesians for a minute to show you that. Because if we're talking about Jesus' obeying Jesus... If we're saying that knowing Jesus means that we're going to obey him, if we're going to talk about them, then, then, then we almost have to ask the question, what are we obeying? 
Right there are 613 commands in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Add on to those 613 commands of the Old Testament, everything added in the New Testament from Jesus and the apostles. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what are we supposed to obey? Is it all of them? Or am I supposed to keep track of all of those? Well, sort of. Sort of is the answer. But, but what I love is that if we turn to Matthew chapter 22, we can actually understand that. You see, Jesus was there and he was talking in Matthew 22. I've shared this with you before, I think, um, that he was talking with some Sadducees and Pharisees and it, it seems like they were trying to play that let, like, let, let's try to stump Jesus game. You know, it's like, like they're going to stump God, but they, they try it. They always fail. They look dumb when they're done, but you know, they're, they're trying this. And, and, and Matthew records that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his response to their question. So one of the Pharisees steps forward and, and he asks Jesus a question. He says, teacher which is the great commandment in the law. And you can almost sense if you're studying that, that passage, it's like that, that Pharisee's thinking, man, I got him. I got him. There's no way he's going to get this right. There's 613. He's not going to get it right. But Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. First of all, notice Jesus didn't give them one command. He gave them two. It's like he's doubling down on them. And, and he says that all of the commandments of scripture, every single one of them are, are dependent on these two right here. In other words, all of the commandments are summed up. They're, they're contained in these two commands, which we can boil down to just four words. Love God, love people. That's way easier Right, that that I I can handle that. Right, I'm I'm not that bright a guy. I can I 613 plus laws is hard, but I can follow four words: love God, love people. So so what does it mean when we say that if we love Jesus, we obey His commands? It means that we love God, and we love people. Or, or maybe I can insert my original question right here: What are we doing here? The answer is what Paul is pointing us to. It's the goal he's leading us to, the attainment of the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, which, again, we can sum up in four simple simple words with one comma and one period. Love God, love people. That's what we're doing here. We're here to love God and to love people. Obedience, it's not about saying no. It's about saying yes. It's about saying yes to love. It's it's about saying yes to loving God and loving people. You see, God doesn't want your begrudging submission. He doesn't want your begrudging obedience. If if you're parents, you know this, right? Like when you tell your kids to go clean your room, you, you, you don't send them there and you don't want them to storm off and slam their door and start cleaning their room because you've threatened to take away their iPhone. Or if you're particularly devious, maybe you just threatened to take away the iPhone charger, Right? Like that, that's not why we want our kids to obey us. We want our kids to obey us because they love us. And it's the same thing with God. It's the same thing. You want them to obey you because they, they love you and God wants you to obey him. He wants you to follow his commands because you love him. He doesn't want to take away your freedom. He wants to give you the ultimate freedom that's found in a relationship with Jesus, when you're set free from the bondage of your sin, when you're set free from all that stuff that weighs you down. 
It's a freedom that leads us away from baggage. It leads us away from sin and into the light of his grace, his righteousness, his love for us. God wants you to obey him because you love him. He wants you to serve him, not because you don't want to go to hell, but because you want to please him. Church, we've got to confront the lies of this world with the truth of Scripture. Because this is something we have to understand at our core. Becoming a Christian is not... It's not, it's just not about saying no to things that we and the world think are good things. It's about saying yes to things that are better than we could have ever possibly imagined. It's about saying yes to a reconciled relationship with the creator of the universe. It's about saying yes to loving God and loving people. And as we return to our text in Ephesians today, uh, you should see that Paul even adds a measure of just how much we ought to reach these goals that he set before us. He, He says at the end of verse 13 that we ought to reach it to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I told you earlier that being a Christian is an act is an activity. And, and right here we're seeing an active growth. It's not a status change. This isn't going from lost to saved. This is a growth that happens over time. And as we follow Jesus, as we live this life of obedience where we're shaped by a love for God and, and a love for people where we're doing life together, we are expected to, and in fact, we will grow. Paul says here, to mature manhood. And and we can understand that to becoming full grown. You're going to grow until you can't grow anymore. And the measure of what it means to be full grown, it's it's right there in our text. It's until we look like Jesus. We grow until we look like Jesus. That's That's the point. Christ wants us to grow until we look like him. I'm I'm not there yet. I am not perfect. Ask Tama, ask Katie or Kylie, even better. Ask my daughters if I'm there yet. I'm not. But I strive to get there. I strive to be like Jesus. That's that's what Paul is saying here. In in our text today, he's saying that Jesus gives these leaders to the church to, to prepare the church. That's all of us, all of us collectively for ministry inside and outside the church so that we'll have a unity together so so that we will be bound together by our common faith in Christ and that together we will truly know and love Jesus so that we'll grow up to be more and more like Christ. That's the goal of being a Christian. The goal is that we look like Christ. But after the goal, As we continue in our text, we can discover that this goal was given to us for our own good. It was given to us for for our own good. Paul continues on by saying that this happened in in verse 14, 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We're commanded to, to seek this goal for our own good so that we'll mature. But Americans today, we, we do not like maturing. 
we seem to be maturing at slower and slower rates. We want to hang on to our youth at all cost. I turned 40 this week, and one of my coworkers at the base said, 40 is the new 30. I, I don't know if that's true, but we, we just want to stay as young as we can, as long as we can. We live with our parents longer than any previous generations. We, we delay marriage and, and having kids. We are prone to avoid responsibility. As a whole, we seem to be averse to maturing. But the maturing that Paul has outlined in this letter here is the natural product of being a true disciple of Jesus. It's the natural par- product of being an active part of the church. And that maturing protects us from a very real danger. It protects us from false doctrines, false gospels that always come along. These false teachings are always easier to stomach than the true gospel, which is why I think they they take hold sometimes. If you don't know who Christ really is, if you haven't really grown into the maturity that that Christ has set out before you, we see the the, the kind of the low-hanging fruit ones to talk about, right? The prosperity gospel. We've all heard about that. Sometimes it's called the health and wealth gospel. And that's the, that's the news that if you just love Jesus, if you just have faith, if you become a Christian, that Jesus is going to bless you. He's going to give you physical and financial prosperity. He's going to give you physical healing. You won't get sick. You won't get any, you, you, like you'll, he'll cure you from diseases. That's the prosperity gospel. And that's way easier to follow than the true gospel, which, is, which promises suffering for followers of Jesus. There's, there's also, maybe, you, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, the emergent gospel. That's a, a little bit newer kind of message that's been sent out over the last decade, decade or so. And, and that, the, the emergent gospel says that just about anything is okay as long as it feels good. It, it teaches you that it's okay as long as you just follow your heart. But the problem with the emergent gospel is, is that it's, it's, it's easy to follow, sure, but, but it doesn't doesn't align with the truth of scripture, which tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's much easier to follow that gospel than the true gospel, which calls us to put our flesh to death. You see, false gospels offer an empty hope. It's, it's based on, 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 on people or on things rather than on the finished work of Christ. They're empty cisterns. They're they're broken. They don't don't have any water. It's a well you can throw your pail down there as much as you want. You're never going to get water out of them. Which is why we need to grow into this maturity that Christ is calling us to have here. The maturity that we see here, though, it's found when when we know and love Jesus like we've been talking about. It's found when we're bound together by our common faith, when we're living in unity with one another, serving in ministry together inside and outside the church, building each other up in the faith as we love God and love people, as we become more and more like Jesus. That maturity though, that maturity, it's not something that we ought to avoid. It's, it's something we should actually seek after because it protects us from false hopes. It keeps us grounded in our only true hope, which is Jesus. That's why Paul closes out in verses 15 and 16 by saying, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He's saying there that we're going to grow up in every way into Christ. So I did some research on that word there, every. In, in the Greek, that word is pos. It means each, every, any and every, every sort of, all kinds of, all. Every means every. We grow up into Christ in every way. Every way. Which means we grow up into Christ in how we interact with our kids and our coworkers. We grow into Christ in how we react to good news and bad news. We grow into Christ in how we handle our finances. We grow into Christ in how we see and treat and love people. We grow up into Christ in every way because he is our head. The whole body, the the whole church is led by Christ. Jesus is the leader. I am not the head of this church. Pastor Tim is not the head of the church. If you wanted to expand it out, our deacons are not the head of this church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and all of us are called to grow into him to become more and more like him. And as we do, we grow together in love. What are we doing here? Why are we here as Christians? What's what's the point of being a Christian? What's the point of being the church? Being a Christian, being the church, it's about more than just getting into heaven. It's about more than just a status change from lost and saved. That's part of it, but it's, it's about more than that. Being a Christian, being the church, our our purpose for being here is about living a life centered on and consumed by realizing God's kingdom here on earth. Which means that we are living out the mission that we recite every single Sunday where we go out into the community and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that needs the gospel desperately. So I'm going to ask, how do, how do we actually do that? How do, we, how do we live out the kingdom of God here on earth? It's what I just said. We, we do that by loving God and, and loving people. In, in all of the ways that that can work itself out, in all of the ways that we can love God and love people at the same time, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be seeking Christ and we're going to lead other people to seek Christ because we know he is our only source of hope. Everything else is a waste of effort. It's a waste of time. Christ is our hope. We're going to serve people. We're going to serve our community. We're going to seek to reach our community. And we're going to experience, this is is the awesome part. Like it's clear in the Bible, when when you surrender to Christ, you will experience genuine life change. The kind of life change that shakes our families and our neighborhoods and our city and beyond. That's the power of the gospel. And that, I believe, is the life-changing reality that Christ has placed before us here in Alberta in 2020. That's why we're here, for that reason. So as we prepare to land this plane as we prepare to leave here today and go out into the world around us and into our neighborhoods and and everywhere else, I've got a few questions for you. 
I'm going to try my very best to read them slowly to you. If you're taking notes, I'll copy them down. I'll share them with you after if you want them because I want you guys to spend some time thinking about these questions. I want you to reflect on these questions over the course of the week because how we answer these questions is going to determine our path going forward. Some of these questions are for you individually. Some of them are for us collectively as a church. Okay, so four multi-part questions and then we'll be out of here. What are we doing here? What has been the point of our faith in Christ? Is, is Jesus your fire insurance to keep you out of hell? Or are you living to serve and glorify him? What are you doing here? Second question. Are there areas in which you need to repent? Remember that word repent means to turn and, and go the other direction. So are there areas where you need to repent, where you haven't been living the mission that Christ has placed before you as a follower of Jesus? Is there somewhere where you need to repent? Kind of connected to that is the, is the third question. Are, are there specific areas of your life where you can see that the Lord has been preparing a field for you to work? Is there something that, that you feel like God is placing before you that he wants you to do? Someone he wants you to share the gospel with? Some, some mission, some ministry that he wants you to lead or, or help or, or work with? Remember, the work of ministry is for all of us. So is there a field that the Lord has been preparing for you? And if there is, are you ready to go and do the work that he's calling you to do. You love Jesus enough to obey Jesus and do what he's called you to do. Last question. I actually debated whether or not I'd have this last one in here. Um, I think it's an important question for us collectively to ask as a church all the time because it speaks to whether or not we're living out this mission that Christ has laid before us. So the last question is, if the Point Church in Alberta ceased to exist tomorrow, would anybody outside these walls, would anybody know? And if, if they know, would anybody outside these walls care? Hard question. I think right now, I think the answer is yes, people would know and yes, people would care. And, and that's a testament to you guys. That's a testament to the fact that we are a church and, and I say we because it's not me. We are a church that reaches into our community. We are a church that's taking, making an effort to, to be more than, more than about just like right here. We want to be out there loving Alberta, reaching Alberta. But we have to keep asking that question. Those questions, they, they may seem tough. I, I, I know that. But we've got to be serious about our faith because here's the thing. Christ was serious about you on the cross. We have to be serious about following Jesus and I think these questions can help us to do that. 
how you respond to those questions, as I said a minute ago, it's going to direct our path as we go forward as, as followers of Christ. So, so really consider these. Spend some time thinking about these. I want us to know what we're doing here. And then I want us to do it. I hope that you do too. Let's pray.